I have not been preaching very long compared to warriors of the faith who've devoted decades to the work, only about 16 years full-time. About eight of those years in my 20s, and then about eight of those years in my 30s. And during the first eight years, I didn't preach that many places. Obviously, the local work that I was with, and every once in a while, somebody would take a flyer on some kid and let him come preach. But in those early years, the most often asked question from parents, elders, members of these other churches was this. Why do you think we are losing so many of our young people? And I wondered why I got asked that a lot. I guess because I was still kind of technically sort of a young person. You know, one of the statistics that had made it, I guess. And so we would have some nice, I think, healthy discussion on that. And look, I will not bombard you with statistics tonight, but that's a real issue. Children who grow up in the church and then fall away. Well, I've noticed that over the last eight years, so the second half of the 16 years, I really don't get asked that question very often. I preach at a lot more places, meet a lot more preachers and elders and spend time in a lot more homes and actually hear that question asked a lot less. And I've wondered why that is. Now, maybe it's because I'm just kind of an old man now, right? I'm not freshly out of that zone, and so maybe that's it, although I would argue having teenagers is when you're ready to start answering that question. Maybe it's because churches are doing a really good job with their kids, and so they feel like, you know, we've kind of done everything we can do. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe we've just sort of resigned ourselves to some statistical failures along the way. I wonder why that is that we don't discuss it as often as we should, because it is a very important question, and there are real reasons why this happens to some kids. And so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. And you know, when you talk about what are some reasons why children run into trouble a little bit later, there's big ticket items, you know, like um, they fall in love with someone who's not a Christian. Yeah, that'll take people away from the Lord sometimes. Or they just mix themselves up with ungodly friends and it influences their behavior. And that happens too. Or they get to college and somebody teaches them to stop believing and that grows inside of them. There are some sort of big things that happen. But I would argue that the number one reason why any young person falls away from the Lord is actually the same reason why people in their 20s and 30s fall away from the Lord. And it's the same reason why people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s fall away from the Lord. And it is, by definition, that slow fade we discussed on Sunday. It's just a slow drift. Time passes by, a little bit less focus on God, a little more focus on life, and you just find yourself engaged in other things, and the relationship with God becomes a little bit less healthy. And as we described on Sunday, we can just float on Away, And if I was going to put that in very real practical terms, what does it mean to focus less on God and drift? I would put it this way. Less time for God. That's what's happening. Let me illustrate it this way. Here's a 15-year-old. He's in high school now. New friends, new classes, a lot of homework, some extracurricular activities. Less time for God. Then he turns 16 and they take a picture of him and put his face on a piece of plastic. He can drive. And he gets a job so that he can put gas in the vehicle. Less time for God. Turns 18. 
gets to go to college. New place, new friends, new responsibilities, different job, less time for God. He turns 20 and he meets her. Any extra time and money he thought he had, gone. Less time for God. He's 22 and he graduates. More time for God? No. He gets married. He starts a job. He works his way forward to make something of himself. Less time for God. He's 25. He has a child. Less time for God. He's 30. He gets into his real career. Less time for God. Now he's 38. He's got four kids. Less time for God. And while all of the things I described to you in and of themselves are perfectly fine, if we aren't careful, just quite naturally, they can take up larger portions of our time and make less time for the Lord, and we drift, and we don't even know it's happening. Now, when you get into, and I've not gotten here yet, Lord willing, I'll get to get here. But when you get into your 50s, 60s, 70s, or 95, theoretically, you now have more time for God, because the kids are grown and some of those things are done. But if we have habitually taught ourselves to minimize time with God, for the sake of other things, that doesn't switch back when you turn 60. We just fill it with other stuff. Sports and recreation and grandchildren and the like. So all those things are good. But what I want you to see is our young people and older people are facing the exact same problem. We need to be. And here's our premise for the study tonight. No matter your age, we can work to fix it the exact same way. We must be making time for God. That's the answer. Fighting to give him attention in a world where, as I described to you, there are a lot of very lawful things. I didn't even mention unlawful and godly things. There are many lawful, perfectly fine and important things that are vying for our attention and our time. So the message tonight is not just for our young folks, though I ask you to please, please pay very close attention to the five things I'm going to show you from the scriptures tonight. You can start strong and finish strong. You can stay close to God and not have to find your way back home as some of the rest of us may need to do. We're going to look at some of that tonight in our beginning place. You see it right behind me, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's make that sort of our hub focal passage for study. In Ephesians chapter 5, look with me in verses 15, 16, and 17. Maybe you can read it on the board behind me. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore... This, uh, he's just finished about being awake and letting Christ shine in you. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, there's a whole handful of directives in these three verses. Let's take a look at it piece by piece. In verse 15, we're being told to walk circumspectly. Look around. You have lots of pathways to choose every day. You got godly things, ungodly things, neutral things. You get to make choices every day. Be careful how you walk. Make wise choices. Okay, what's a, what's a wise choice? Verse 16, it means evaluating the value of the time that you have to work with. And designating that time in the right and proper categories. A balanced usage of our time because the days are evil. Young folks, and I'm just going to throw myself in there. We young folks, we don't know what that means yet. But time passes so very rapidly. And the health and fervor and ability to do great things can pass over time as that vitality is drained away. In other words, you only get so much sand in the hourglass. 
Use it with great wisdom. Don't be foolish. How would you be foolish in this context? Using time poorly. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus must be first place in everything. That's the real answer. And really the only point we need to make tonight, using our time wisely means, however you can uh, lay out your day tomorrow and wherever you go and whatever you do, whatever honors Christ comes first. Whatever puts focus on the spiritual goes before everything else. First place in everything, Colossians 1.18. But tonight we need to get practical with this. What does that look like? What does it practically look like for the members of this church and those who are visiting tonight and myself to be wise with our time, to walk circumspectly, to use it well, and to make sure that Christ stays first every single day? All I want to share with you tonight are a few basic ideas that can help us do that. I want to thank everybody for being here. We're getting to that last leg of the trip tonight and tomorrow night. I cannot stand my own voice for 30 seconds. And you've listened to me talk about 40 minutes every night. May the Lord have mercy on you. You've paid good attention. You followed along. It means a lot. I'm very thankful to get to be here. Appreciative that the week shaped up the way that it has. Always thankful to the leaders of this church for what they're doing, for what this is. And we're hopeful that these studies help this church grow. That's all it's about. I preach what I think is helping me get closer to God, and I hope it helps people that we meet along the way. That's all this is. Here are some things to consider in this short study. Number one, let's start really, really simple and basic. Making time for God begins, perhaps, for the Christian by making worship non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. It doesn't have to fight for time. It doesn't have to hope that it gets picked tonight over the other things that happen along the way. Attending with God's people and enjoying the fruits of worship and encouragement always win over everything else. Now, I know there are work obligations and things along the way. We'll talk a little bit about that. But so far as I have any ability, make worship non-negotiable. Let me tell you how obvious this should be. What would you think? If when you became a Christian, the New Testament said that you were required to devote 10% of your time to worshiping with God's people, would you consider that to be too much? Who thinks 10% of time would be too much? How about, uh, how about 5%? What if the Bible said, I want you to spend 5% of your life in a place with God's people doing godly things? Unreasonable or reasonable? How about four? How about three? How about two and a half? Do you know that in a typical week, God's people meet together for four hours out of 168 hours? 2.5% of an entire week is used, gathered in a place. We did a little better than that this week, didn't we? Gathered in a place where we, and are you still in Ephesians 5? We do everything you're about to see. Look in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. I'm going to go down through verse 21. I want you to notice that using our time wisely will most definitely include everything on this list that is godly. Verse 17, do not be foolish. Number one, understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We can add another and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Five pretty awesome things. Now, I would argue you could do these things anywhere, and we should be doing them in many places. But the five things we just noted, learning the will of God, verse 17, being influenced by the Spirit, verse 18, singing to one another, verse 19, giving thanks to Christ, verse 20, and being subject to one another. Wouldn't it be really neat if there was one concentrated location where we devoted the entirety of our attention to those five things? Wouldn't that be cool? That's what this is. That's what worship is. It is the concentrated event of using our time as wisely as we can based on the definition in those verses. Four hours a week. That's kind of, I want to use the right word here. I don't know if it's, it's not pathetic, but it's, it should be a minimum, a minimum idea, shouldn't it? And gospel meetings as an opportunity to double that up ought to seem like nothing to us. I had some statistics, I didn't bring them tonight, of things we do more than four hours a week. And there are some pretty mundane things on that list. Let's make worship entirely non-negotiable. The passage that I would add to this is one that you know well, but I'm sure Brother Bob has taught you that Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25 is not really about being at the assembly or forsaking the assembly. It's not some checklist of whether you're there or not. That is not what the meaning of verse 25 is. Verses 22 through 25 describe an experience, an experience that you have in its purest form when you are at worship. Let me show it to you. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, at least in increments of four hours a week, at least. I have a Bible at home beside not forsaking the assembly. I wrote three letters, D-U-H. Duh. That's about the most obviously easy passage in all of Christianity. Four to five, okay, I'll calculate in travel time so you don't write me an angry email tonight. Let's say it's six hours. We're up, we're still under 4%. And we're doing exactly what a family of believers who are connected to Jesus would do. Now, let me just say, and we need some more points because this is not all that easy. I've met with two people in the last couple of months who were uniquely having issues in their life, not doing well, not worshiping well, but also just kind of not doing well. And I said, listen, you want to turn this thing around? I got a handful of things to show you, but write this on a piece of paper and stick it on your refrigerator. Three words, make worship non-negotiable. And for the next solid month, come to every Bible class, have your Bible lesson done, come to every worship service, take notes, stick around for more than 19 seconds and watch what happens. And guess what happened? They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They had drifted to the point that making a commitment like that was beyond what they were able to do. And the story has not gone well. 
I don't ever want to be at a place where a commitment like this is too much for the Lord. Now, maybe you feel that way tonight. So we have a few other things that can help us along the way. So the first thing would be make worship non-negotiable. But of course, we will serve God in other ways besides just being here. So the second thing in making time for God would have to do with everyday behavior. And it would be the following. Put God on your weekly schedule. How many of you have iCal on your iPhone or whatever Samsung people do? I don't know who you are. Android users. I'm an Apple nut. But if you have a smart device or a computer, chances are, especially if you have children, more than one child, or just pretty much anything, if you pull open your calendar where it has dots, did yours have dots on the days where there's an event? There's a doctor appointment, there's a school event. I could count the non-dots so much more quickly than the dots. It's been probably five years since there was a map where there were more than 15 non-dots in a month. We are extremely busy. And if you dig into those dots, what are you going to find? It's stuff that you schedule. These are events that are, by their very design, non-negotiable and important. And there are going to be dots on your iCal for things that you're really excited about. Anybody going on vacation this summer? Dots. Nothing gets planned in this week. We use super vibrant colors on our calendars at home. We plan things that we really enjoy. Or ball games. How many of you have a son who's in competitive or a daughter in competitive sports and a ball game comes up and you just didn't go? You totally forgot about it. Nobody does that. We dot it, circle it, put some colors around it, draw a cute little basketball. It's important. We put it on the calendar. And you know what? We put some things on the calendar we really don't like. All right, confession time. I waited 10 years to go to the dentist. 10 I had nine of the nastiest cavities, root canal, which really wasn't that bad, by the way. If you have a root canal coming up, that was not that bad. But I was not going to put the dentist on the calendar. But now, guess what? I put the dentist on the calendar every six months. I go to the dentist. I don't want to go, but it's important. You see, some of the dots are things that I don't want to forget, and I probably would never forget, and I like, and some things are SAT exams, school tests, things like that. But we have to do them. If it's important, and it's planned, and noted, and we mark it, the question is, on our calendars, what is of God on these calendars? We don't calendar date Sundays and Wednesdays. That's just a part of being, you know, a part of a church. But what I think we ought to be thinking about is putting other opportunities for God on the calendars. Things like gospel meetings. Gospel meetings here locally, gospel meetings in the area. Put them on the calendar as soon as you find out. And make everything else plan itself around an opportunity to worship God. Youth weekends, singings, similar events on the calendar. If this church, and I participated in one Sunday night and really enjoyed it. If they have the young people over to their home to study, to spend time together, and there's a young person in your home, put it on the calendar. And so when we start working on homework, let's get it done on Saturday, because Sunday night after church, we're going to go be with God's people at these folks' house. It's on the calendar. It matters. It counts. Let me show you a story that might help us with this just a little bit. Look in Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke, chapter 12. Here's a fella who was just, sounds to me like a great planner. This guy planned things out, carried it out, and because he planned it and carried it out, he was incredibly successful. He has a massive pronoun problem. If you've heard me talk about that yet this week, this guy is in a pronoun me bubble, but he's still very effective in what he does. 
Now, let me show you the story. It is about greed, but I want you to see where Jesus goes with this, beginning in verse 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a very successful man. He's rich and he's productive. And he plans to be richer and more productive. And as a result of that, he can take the ease of his richness and his productivity. Excellently done. And Jesus does not fault the man for being a great planner. He faults the man because all of that planning was worldly. Every dot on this guy's iCal was collecting, saving, spending, building, and enjoying. What's the problem? Well, I think the evidence is given to us in the very next verse. Well, you look in verse 20. But God said to him, that, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, here it is, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's my argument tonight. Let's plan to collect and build and enjoy things of a godly, righteous nature. Plan for it. And I'll tell you guys, uh, dads at home, this can work on a really practical level too. In our family, when we find that we've gotten really busy and we've fallen back on simple things like having our Bible reading done together or doing our Bible class material, which is a really excellent thing to do, we have our calendar there on the refrigerator. We go to Tuesdays and Thursdays and we write 7 to 8 p.m. Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m. Thursday, and we circle it into color, and that's Bible time. I mean, the TV goes off from 7 to 8. Everything else has to be put out of the way because that's when we meet to study the Bible together. Put God on the schedule. He owns all time. He allows every event under heaven to take place. And he deserves for that kind of attention as well. So there's a second thing. And what it does is it builds up our godliness even beyond the worship service. Now, you may be looking at this thinking, yeah, I've tried some of that stuff before. I've tried to be really faithful to worship for, you know, sections of time. And we've tried some special projects at home and, and really tried to plan the events. But it just seems like after a while it starts to fade away. Well, here's a third thing that can really tie a lot of this together. It's a principle and it's found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Here's how we make more time for God. We recognize that if we build cords of two or more... We will be stronger. There are a great many things I have come to admit that I cannot be successful at on my own. And as a man, I don't like that. I don't like telling you that there are things I can plan and try and schedule and have a full grip on and it completely fall apart because I tried to do it by myself because that's what guys do. And I was unable to do so. The truth is, there are some things in faith, I hope you're ready to admit this too, it's really important tonight, that you're just not going to be successful at if you try to do it by yourself. Jethro, my favorite Old Testament name, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law said, you cannot do it alone. That's the principle of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Look with me in verses 9 through 12 partnership. 
working together with other people, strengthens us incredibly. Look in Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their, for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I love the phrase accountability partners. You guys use that phrase around here? It's not a Bible phrase. It's a Bible idea. An accountability partner. Things that I've tried, I can put it on the schedule and circle it, but I may not get it done on my own. But if I can find someone to do it with me, or one or two others to work with me, it becomes easier to do, and we can do it even better. You guys heard of the, uh, the two-horse rule? I really want you to check me on the two-horse rule. Because every time I mention it, people say, hogwash, or horsewash, or something. But I researched it again today, and I'm standing by it. Math question, ready? One horse, ready? One horse can pull 700, you might want to write this down, can pull 750 pounds. Got it? The other horse can pull 750 pounds. When you put the two horses together, how much weight can they pull? Simple logic says... You add the two together. One horse, 750. The other horse, 750. They can haul 1,500 pounds. Those two horses together can pull 3,000 pounds. I know you don't believe me. Check it out. The Internet's a cool place. I've actually seen larger statistics than that, so I'm hedging a little bit. They can pull not double their weight, four times their weight, which means the weight that seemed heavy before is much, much lighter and they're able to pull it much, much further. What are we saying? There are things that are difficult on your own that become not, not twice as easy when you do it with someone else, but four times as easy. Very simple and not a big deal at all. Accountability partners are incredibly important. Where are some areas where this can help? I'm, gonna, I'm just confessing because, I, I mean, I'm not from here. I mean, if you come to where I preach, just don't tell them half of what I tell you. I've been preaching since 2001. Up until 2012, I had never successfully read the Bible through in one year. All right, you guys do that? The one year read? I had, we have got a guy in Dallas named Mark Roberts, and he puts out a Bible reading, full Bible reading program every year. And I had tons of January and February's filled in on that. And then sometime in March, every single year, I would walk by and pull the magnet off just long enough for the paper to slide underneath the fridge. We moved one year. There were four Mark Roberts programs half completed under my fridge. Well, on the first day of 2012, my friend David Osteen called me. Not that other Osteen, if you're familiar with Dallas. This is a different guy. He does not get asked that very often. He said, Chris, let's do it together. I'm going to text you at 2 o'clock every day. It's a five-day reading program. I'm going to text you at 2 o'clock every day. You text me at 2.15 if you don't hear, and let's read it through. And I said just absolutely the just worst thing of the moment because I didn't want him to one-up me with his idea. I said, let's read it twice in 2012. And he said, okay. And I went, ow. Oh, I knew I'd done something. It took me 14 months, not 12, but we did it. We read through the Bible twice, and I hadn't even done it once. 
because I had a partner. If you want to read better, you find a partner and work with them. The cord of two is much stronger and three even stronger than that. There was a wonderful little thing that happened at our church in Eastside where one of the young ladies decided, she was about 10, that she wanted to sit with a widow in every service. And I knew this little girl pretty well, and I knew that after about two weeks she'd forget all about it, but I didn't want to mess with her, so I let her do it. And on that second week, I could tell she was forgetting. Well, there just happened to be another girl. She was two years older, and she was over here trying the same thing. And I gave them some advice in the third week when they kind of forgot about it. I said, why don't you two get together? And why don't you meet up at the door when you get there and say, let's go sit with someone together. They did it for months. What was the difference? Teamwork. Accountability. Partnership. Hospitality. Find two families who want to be hospitable and go your house this week, our house two weeks later, your house two weeks later, work together. It'll go much, much further. I've seen people handle the entire church over a year working in terms of partnership. We fall down. Woe to the one who is alone when he falls. He may not get back up. We get cold. Woe to the one without someone else to warm him. I have a quick story on that that's never made me forget this idea. I was at a little golf tournament with my dad and my brother. He's three years younger than me. We were staying in this motel, and there were two beds. And as soon as we got there, dad hopped on one bed, and Caleb hopped on the other, and there I was. And as it got dark, my dad fell asleep, and he is a double downer. He is a burrito snorer. Do you know what a burrito snore is? They both snore and wrap up the covers like a burrito. So sleeping in that bed was impossible. So we had this idea of taking the air conditioner and turning it way down because it at least slightly drowned out the events that were happening on that side of the room. So I laid in bed with my brother Caleb, and we're not really close. You know, we don't hug or any of that stuff, really. A little bit now, maybe. Probably after that night. And I woke up at the middle of the night, and he, he was, a, he was a, a cover shuffler. You know, they don't wrap it up. They just shuffle it off the other side of the bed. And I wake up at 2.30, and folks, I really thought I was going to die. I had two choices. Lay there and die, or snuggle my feet up against my brother's belly. I'm alive today. You know what I chose. Woe to the one without someone next to them to bring them warmth. It's true of your heart. It's true of your courage. It's true of life. Find somebody who shares an interest in Christ that you share. We're doing that at home. We have a couple of summer events where we take the kids to these summer events. And we put it on the calendar and we talk about it. But if you can get several kids excited about it together, it always happens. Because they're excited about it together. Okay, a couple other things. Build cords of two or more work together. And you might say, okay, I think this can help me in a few ways, but Chris, you just don't understand how busy I am. I mean, my calendar is absolutely filled, and I'm fortunate just to be at worship when I can because of work and other things. And even if I got with somebody else, I just don't know if I could do it. Well, let me give a little piece of advice that may help probably 90% of the people in the room. Maybe it's time... To trim the electro fat. I'm not talking about some shock and awe diet. I'm talking about our electronics. The copious amount of hours that are consumed of those 168. We started with the 168. That's how many hours you get in a week. Four of those were going to church. Hopefully we're doing other things for God throughout the week. 
a huge amount of 168 is being consumed in other things. I wrote down some statistics. Watching television, national average for families watching television, there goes 35 of your 168. Video games, national national average for 8th grade boys and girls, there goes 20 more hours. Social media, 16, gone, and that number's low. Texting and calling, another 16. Are you adding these up? By the time we sleep and engage that part of our our brain that needs the drug that is the electronic stimulus, is there any wonder we have little time or attention left for Bible reading, hospitality, gospel meetings, things that please and serve the Lord? Ephesians 5 said, redeeming the time. I like that idea. Redeeming the time. Rescue it from loss. The time is drowning. The time is sinking. You, you guys remember that old uh, Don't Do Drugs commercial? Uh, the ad where there's the girl out on the end of the pier and the other girl is drowning there. And instead of throwing her the life preserver, she just turns and walks away and lets her drown. Do you remember that? Anybody? Texas thing, I guess. But it's about if you see somebody doing drugs, I mean, don't walk away. Help them. That's, that's our time. It's just flailing about and drowning. And these electronic indulgences are taking it. And sometimes we just walk away. Redeem it. Save it from itself. From the electronic age. I think that just hiatus from Facebook could probably allow most of us to read the entire Bible through by May. I'm talking about huge amounts of opportunities. Now, the passage we're going to use to fortify this is kind of odd. I want to look at Daniel a minute. There was nothing electronic going on back in Daniel. No Instagram, no Snapchat, none of that kind of stuff. But there were choices, and that's what I need you to see. If you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll remember this very well. I want to start when he was quite young. I don't know how old Daniel is in chapter 1. Probably a teenager. And, you know, he made a lot of really difficult choices. But in Daniel chapter 1, I would say we've got about 70 years of his life in Daniel 1 through 6. Teenager at the first, maybe in his 80s by the time we get to chapter 6 in the lion's den. But what drove him through life was verse 8. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself. I will not defile myself. So when it came down to choosing God or anything else, he always chose God. When it came to the foods, he chose God. But when we get to chapter 6, it's the confounding choice. Pray in the window, die. Pray in the closet, live. Continue to pray Monday at 3 o'clock, die. Move it to Tuesday at 9 a.m., live. Why didn't he change it? Why didn't Daniel make a small, short-term change? You know what I'm talking about. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. You know what happened next. These men came by agreement, found Daniel, and he gets thrown into the lion's den. What's going on? Folks, Daniel's faith was non-negotiable. His commitment to God and the time he had been given to God, or he had given to God, was so non-negotiable that he would not trade it in even to avoid certain death. Would you think about that for a couple seconds? 
even to avoid the taking of his life, he did not know he would be saved. He told the king as much. He would not trade. Now, two things occur to me when I read this story. I am trading in prayer time, Bible reading time, some worship time for a whole lot less than the avoidance of death. I think that God deserves more integrity than that. He wouldn't trade it for his own life, and I'm trading it so I can watch some binge Netflix The Flash season two. I like The Flash. But there has to be some control on this, some trimming of that fat, so that we can make the time for God. And also think about this, maybe we should think about it more like Daniel, instead of Is it a little bit of Netflix or is it getting the Bible reading done? Maybe we should think about it as our life. I I can't trade in the hope of spiritual life for things that don't mean anything. And that happens on a microtransaction, everyday kind of level. Folks, just a little bit of smartphone discipline. One of the things we'll do in our home, and we haven't done it in a little while, so I'm not going to boast consistency on this. I may need some accountability partners on this. Is the basket. You guys know what the basket is? The basket is, everybody walks in the house, and you put your phones in the basket. And it stays there till the morning. And all of a sudden, you see what eyeballs look like again. Did you know your family has eyeballs? Smiles? Thoughts that can be shared with sound? Sometimes we needed that reminder. Trim the electro fat. Copious amounts of time is unveiled to you. And then lastly, I would just say this, and it really just ties together the last two nights. I'm really appreciative of your patience in the study on prayer, because I think that's how we should end this. And while we're talking about electrofat and social media, let me word it in this way. Give God daily status updates. Now, I know the cool kids don't do the status updates on Facebook anymore. You're snap, snapgramming, insta-chatting. I know what they're really called. But there's something about that, isn't it? There's something about putting information on social media that is invigorating. You know, you, you ate, uh, I'm talking about tacos this week because I absolutely love tacos, all right? I ate the most amazing, actually today I had the most amazing fajitas at Superior Grill. Anybody been to Superior Grill? I mean, if you call yourself Superior Grill, you better bring it. They're not mediocre grill. The fajitas were great. So I'm going to take a picture of my fajitas. And I'm going to put a picture of my fajitas on Facebook, and I'm going to check back every 10 minutes just to see who likes my fajitas. And if you get less than five likes in five minutes, you need to take it down. You bombed. Try again later. We know this. We want to share what's going on with us, and we want to get feedback on that, and we live on that, even though it's so one-dimensional. Hardly more important than a fajita for one. You know who needs our status updates? You know who wants to hear from us? You know who we should be sharing with? It's God. And by the way, it's a two-for-one. Prayer is actually making time for God, and it's building us up to courageously want to give more time to God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Philippians 4 would be great for this. Let's go to Philippians, the fourth chapter. Add a couple of extra verses here on top of uh, the typical verses 6 and 7. But look in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Having a tough day. Mind's kind of divided. We want to try to get some reassurance so we get on the internet. Stay away from that. Go to your Father and be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to make a quick comment about that. If we are not in the habit of spirit-filled prayer, some of the stuff we talked about a couple of nights ago, and prayer has sort of lost that extra dimension for us, you may even disagree with verse 7. You may say, I don't know what you're talking about, but when I pray, I don't feel that peace. I don't feel this overwhelming sense of the guarding of Christ Jesus. And sometimes we honestly feel better about getting three likes on a Facebook post from some random friend than we do the invigorating fulfillment of prayer. I'm a little bit frightened about that in me. Now, I'm not going to talk about you. But that I can get to a point where I am more invigorated and at peace by some likes on things that don't matter than how I feel when I'm done pouring out my soul to God. You know, the the carnal man cannot appraise spiritual things, and that's about the scariest thing the Bible tells us. I don't want to get there. So we need to be diligent about our prayer lives. The things we've talked about this week, learn to take it all to Him first and appreciate the peace that He provides. And as a result, it just builds on itself. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true and honorable and right, whatever is pure and lovely and of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell. You might say pray or think on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Two things. I didn't see that before. It's two things. The peace of Christ is provided to those who pray and those who practice. You've got to make time for God. You can't pray well or practice well without making time for God. Therefore, be careful how you walk. I told you earlier in the week, New King James and King James, my favorite Bible word, walk circumspectly. Just before we moved from Beaumont up towards Lindale, somebody wrapped our house. Who, who thinks wrapping somebody's house is a really cool idea? You're wrong. Don't do that. But they, it was a term of endearment, wrap your house, and our whole sidewalk said, walk circumspectly in shaving cream. They knew it was my favorite word. I love that word. Circumspectly. Walk in a way that surveys all... Tomorrow's just a, it's just a Friday, but it's filled with steps. Choices, directions, ideas, passions, desires, fulfillments. Look at it very carefully and walk not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most for God of your time, making the most in the Spirit because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I just have to say this for a close tonight and we're done. Maybe tomorrow's too late to get this thing started. Maybe somebody needs to start tonight. Maybe it's time to carve out time and pour out your soul before God, begging for mercy and looking for the love that only He provides. Maybe you need to repent of your sins. Take the time and do that. It's valuable time. Maybe you need the prayers of this congregation. We want to give that time to you. And if you're not a Christian, Peter's letter said the time has already passed for that foolishness. The time for not being a Christian is long gone, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I will live the rest of my time and the rest of my life for the Lord. First and foremost and above all else. Are you ready to start that journey? There is no time but this time. This is the time that you have. Use it for God as we stand together and sing.